0: Alright, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. We're going to be looking at verse 8 down through verse number 13. We, this chapter is one theme through the 21 verses, but I preach too slow. I think it's partially because y'all listen so slow. But we only got seven verses in last week, and we'll, we'll get through verse 13 tonight, and we'll finish the chapter next time. But I want you to understand that it is kind of one theme through this entire chapter. Still a pretty similar theme through the book. Last time we looked at ministers and servants from the first seven verses. As Paul says, mostly about the apostles, but he also includes Apollos. And in this specific context, Peter is an apostle, but he includes Cephas in his, what he's talking about here. But he says, this is how you should receive us. And then he said, this is how, this is why you should receive us that way. And Remember we talked about the under rowers and the galley ships. And really that's what all of us are. Well, tonight we move on then in verse 8 through 13 with the theme of servants for Christ. So let's let's begin reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 8. Now you are full, now you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles' last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the off scouring of all things unto this day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can join together with our church family around your word tonight. I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit you would illuminate the word to us, help us to grow thereby, help us to grow closer together to one another. That we may lock arms as soldiers of Christ in this battle that we're fighting. Thank you that the war is over. Lord, we look forward to the day that we are back with you. But until then, we pray that you would help us to go on doing what you'd have us to do day in and day out as your saints. We pray you're blessed upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. As Paul continues his writing here, He works to show the Corinthians how minor their concerns and criticisms are. These things that they are divided over. These things that he's having to write to correct them about. And he uses here as a a contrast the, the very apostles of Christ. And he speaks to them in this writing about the true pain and the public humiliation that the apostles have faced for the sake of Christ. And he writes that up against the Corinthians. In fact, in verse 8, he's going to speak to them sort of car- sarcastically as he talks about, you know, you guys are reigning as kings. <laughs> he says, you're doing it without us. And then he goes on to say, I kind of wish you really were reigning, but you're not yet. These apostles have suffered. So Paul writes here that the Corinthians don't understand what it means. As He's, he's all through the book said to them, we are to be fools for Christ's sake. Not worldly wise, but foolish according to the worldly standard, which is God's wisdom. Verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake. Now, this is not to behave foolishly. This is simply meaning to identify with the cross of Christ, which seems foolish to the world. Go back with me to chapter 1, verse number 18. And let's just review the the four or five verses here that brought us that information. Chapter 1 of Corinthians 1, verse number 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we reach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You can go back to chapter number four. The suffering experienced by the apostles devalued their mission in the eyes of the world. And it seems that it did this even in the eyes of this church in Corinth. So Paul writes to them to say, you have all this wrong. This is what it meant for us to be servants of Christ. And I want to use that as our topic tonight as we explore these verses. Servants of Christ. And I'm going to give you two headings. One from just verse number eight, not yet kings. And then from verses nine through 13, the heading of. Fools for Christ. So just grab that if you can. You might go to sleep on me before I'm finished. But this is what it means to be servants of Christ. Corinthians, you are not yet kings. You are simply fools for Christ. That's what he says. So confident of the sinful pride of the Corinthians, Paul really ridicules them here. So let's begin in verse 8 with this idea that they're not yet kings. Now you are full, now you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God you did reign that we also might reign with you. I think he's being sarcastic here. It's as if he is saying to them in a very sarcastic manner, you've already achieved spiritual greatness, haven't you? If I said that to you tonight, would you would you take that in a proud way? Well, I really have. Thanks for recognizing that. Or would you say, well, why are you saying that to me? Because we both know it's not true. And Paul says here to the Corinthian church, he says, You've already achieved spiritual greatness. You are full. You are rich. You reign as kings. If you can't buy into the sarcasm there, and that's okay, a lot of, do not take that to be the case, you could at least say that Paul is simply accusing them of being too content with the temporal things of the world. You are full. You are rich. You reign as kings. He puts them right there, right in there with the report of the Laodicean church. Go with me to Revelation 3. And we don't preach this as if they all have this information together. I don't think that's the case. But we do. But Paul's report of the Corinthians here kind of is clarified as we think of the report of Jesus about the Laodicean church in John's revelation, or Christ's revelation given to us by John. Revelation 3, verse 15, or verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These say, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Well, here's what he says to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans I know thy works, I know that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's the exact sentiment Paul writes here in these verses. He begins by saying to the Corinthians, You can go back to Corinthians 4, you are rich, you are full. But he said, a servant of Christ typically doesn't look like that. They're typically poor and persecuted and beaten and naked and homeless. He writes passionately here. He writes as if he truly wishes their state of mind was truth. I wish you were truly full. I wish you truly were rich. I wish you truly did reign. He says, we the apostles would reign with you. But not yet. We understand that. We we will someday rule and reign with Christ. But not yet. So Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, you're acting as if you're already reigning, but not yet. so, So we must correct some things here. William MacDonald writes, Christians will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. When sets up his kingdom on earth. In the meantime, their privilege is to share the reproach of a rejected Savior. Our privilege is to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We must hear this. We must heed this church, knowing that this is the biblical expectation for ourselves. Does this mean we must be homeless? No. Is this a call to poverty? Of course not. I would look out here and say to us, we are rich. Just look at the facility we're meeting in tonight. We live very rich lives. I'm not saying you need to downgrade your life. But I'm saying, Paul was saying to the Corinthians, I don't think he's even given them that call. He's just saying, you need to downgrade your level of thinking. You're thinking and trying to operate up here. We're not there yet. You need to think like Christ, who made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, made was likeness a man, and went to the cross. First, Philippians 3, if you want to look there. Philippians 3, 9. Good, good verses. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. And be found in him, Paul writes to the church of Philippi, not having mine own righteousness, is that what you pray for? Uh, I want to be found in Jesus, not having chances righteousness. You know what my righteousness is? Same as yours. What is it? Filthy, ranks. Filthy ranks. that That's my righteousness. That's, that's not even the bad parts of me. That's the best parts of me. They're just kind of, ugh. So I'm with Paul when he says, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. Is that how you want to be justified? Through the law? Do you want to have to hold that standard? Do you want to live that life? No. But that which is through the faith of Christ. That's what I want. That's how I want to know Him. I want to be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness, but having that righteousness of Christ that I get simply by having faith in Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know Him. Don't you want to know him more? Don't you want your relationship with Jesus to be deeper? Don't you want it to be more meaningful? Don't you want it to be more helpful? Don't you want to for him to be more helpful yourself? Surely we do. That I may know him. What about him? The power of his resurrection. Do we know the power of his resurrection? I mean, in some extent, I think we do. We We're resurrection saints. I prayed tonight about that very thing. I said it was a dark day, Jesus, when you were on the cross, but on Sunday. And I heard some of you say, "Mm mm-hmm. I think that meant some of you wanted to say, woo-hoo, or hallelujah. But I'll take the "Mm -hmm." mm-hmm. But do we really live daily in the power of the resurrection? As if we try for sure. But as if but if nothing can touch us, that's hard. I often myself live as if everything touches me. And I let it and I let it affect me. But in reality, resurrection power means nothing can touch me that doesn't pass through God's hand. Paul says, I want to know this. I want to live this. I want to know Him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. That's not as glorious from a human standpoint. How can I know the fellowship of his sufferings? Well, it's through being made conformable unto his death, Paul says. And then in verse 11, verse 11 if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I'd already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. Now the old English there can put the word apprehended in there too many times and kind of get your brain boggled. But I hope you understand what Paul is saying there. He said, I believe there's a reason God has saved me and I want to live out that purpose. He said, I want to apprehend that for which I have been apprehended. That's how we were saved. We we I I focus a lot here on that word, on the word the Greek word for called, because I always talk to you about it's a summons. You were drugged, or dragged. Paul says it here. You were apprehended. <laughs> That's what happens usually when you disobey a summons, isn't it? You disobey a summons. They send someone. They apprehend you. They bring you before the judge. Paul says, There was a reason I was brought before this righteous judge, and I'm going to live out that reason. So, what do I do? Verse 14, you know this verse. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and saying, Hey, church in Corinth, I love you, brothers. He keeps saying that. Brethren, brethren, brethren. I love you, brothers, but. You're acting as if you've already achieved that high prize. Now, we'll get onto to it later in this study, but I'll just kind of give you a tip of what Paul's writing this about. One, because they were putting their faith in these men. Well, the poor old church of Rome, I was baptized by Apollos. If they only had a preacher like we've got, and I think we'd probably play those games too. And then he's going to get into them and say, you guys are so gifted in the Holy Spirit but you're kind of missing the point for the gifts that He's given to you there. So Paul writes to the Philippians in in the same vein and say, we must press toward the mark. Not that we've already achieved the mark. Not that we've hit the mark. Not that we have the prize. We, We often think of it that way. I spoke with our men on Monday night from the book of Joshua. And it was sad that some of the tribes... Of Israel didn't go across the river. Now they, they were forced to go across and fight, but then they just kind of accepted inheritance back here on the other side of the river. This wasn't God's will. God's will for them to cross over and to conquer and inhabit their inheritance. And that's God's will for us as the church. Not a geographical place. But he expects us to cross over into a victorious Christian life. To conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so one day we will be glorified and we will have our inheritance. And until then, he's given us the Holy Spirit as the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance that we will one day have. But just because we do have the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that our flesh is dead and we can go on living as if we have hit the mark that we have the prize, that we are glorified. Boy, if this is what glorified is like, we don't have much to look forward to, do we? Aren't you glad that this is not glorified preaching? Yeah, Yeah, this is just normal preaching. It might be Holy Spirit-filled preaching. We pray that it is, but it's not glorified preaching. So Paul says to the Philippians, I don't count myself to have apprehended. I forget those things which are behind. I reach forth to those things that before. I press toward the mark. But we're not pressing toward the mark if we believe we already met that mark we're not striving for the prize we think we already have the prize if we think all there is to it in this life is to get saved and know our sins are forgiven it's like we've got a fire insurance policy in our hands we say all right i got that one marked off the list i'll show up as much as i need to to keep them off my back down there at the church and that's that right that's, that's not it at all We show up here to worship together. We show up here to learn from the word, but, but part of that is worshiping our Lord together. That's what we're, we're meant to do here. As servants of Christ, Paul writes to the Corinthians and I say to the church, we've got to put aside this type of thinking. Forget the past. Reach forward for the future. Go with me to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Paul writes to the preacher here Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. That's his instruction to Timothy. And the reason he's given that instruction is this. Paul says about himself, I am now ready to be offered. And when he says I'm ready to be offered, he means it's a, it would be, the Greek word would lead us to understand the Old Testament drink offering that had to be poured out for it to be offered. So he says I'm ready to be poured out like the drink offering because the time of my departure is at hand. I'm getting ready to die. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And because of this, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge. Remember what he said to the the Philippians? The righteous judge who apprehended me, who summons me into his court. Well, on that day, that guy, the righteous judge, he's laid up a crown of righteousness for me. And he's going to give it to me on that day. And not just to me, Paul says, but to all them also that love His appearing. There's a good clue for you on where you are in your relationship with Christ, on where you are in the thinking about your faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Where are you there? Are are you pressing toward the mark? Are you forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before? Or are you like the Corinthians and saying, Yeah, I'm rich and I'm full. I'm fat and I'm happy. And I'm ready for, you know, in that regard, I'm just waiting it out until Jesus comes back. Are you struggling along in the faith, fighting the good fight, daily taking up your cross, following Jesus, denying yourself? And every day saying, Lord, come quickly. I might be able to go another day, but I don't know if I can go too. That's your goal every day. You can always make it through tomorrow, right? James chapter 1, verse 12. James writes, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Do you see the the regal references here? The, The royalty that's inferred here. These crowns. And Paul is sort of undercutting the Corinthian church here in verse 8 and saying, you act as though you rule as kings, and I wish you already did, and that we ruled with you, but you don't. Second Peter chapter 5, would you turn there with me? Second Peter chapter 5. 2 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to go down through verse 4. Peter says this, "...the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed." Well, how does he exhort them? "...feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind." neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. There again, this regal reference to this crown. But back in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8, Paul's sarcastic remarks or his convicting remarks to them "As you are full, you are rich, you have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, let's take a posture of humility. If we don't bear our cross, then we don't get a crown. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself it's one thing if we say we humble ourselves in my way of thinking just humanistically here Christ should never humble himself he should never have to humble himself i'm like the disciples just just come down here don't ride that donkey into town. I want to say a different word there. Get on little war horse. A white stallion. Ride it into town. We'll come with you. Those people along the side of the road crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They'll fight for you. Let's do this. But Jesus humbled himself. He didn't ride in as a king for war. He ride in as a king seeking peace, like waving the white flag. And he went to the cross and in a way that seemed foolish to humans. But that was awfully wise now that we understand God's revealed mysteries. He willingly gave up his life to shed innocent blood, to atone for the wrath of God against our sins. The point I would make to us, the church, is even Christ Himself, God the Son, in human form, took the humble route toward His exaltation. Paul is saying to the Corinthians here, in this regard, don't don't take that high road. Don't operate as if you are rich and full and already reigning as kings. We're the servants of Christ. Doulos bond slaves slaves oh we have a great master we serve him willingly I want to point one more thing out to you I hope you're in Philippians if you're not that's okay but Philippians 2 5 11 there's a great principle from scripture here that we all must understand not really part of the sermon but I want you to not miss it When the Bible says all, what does it mean? All. And we always joke and say, and that's all that all means. When this verse, there's another form of all, and the word is every. God has exalted Jesus and given Him a name above every name, that at His name, every knee should bow. Now, Scripture's clear on these types of things. There's going to come a kingdom. How long is this kingdom going to last? 1,000 years. It's just clear as day. It says that. 1,000 years, right? It took God, how many days to create the earth? Six. He rested on the seventh, so we'll count it as seven. Noah was in the ark for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. Who who are the people who will go to heaven? Who? The saved people. The elect, the bride of Christ, the church. God has these things numbered and organized and set up because He's a God of order. But there are some times when He doesn't get quite that specific about it and He kind of gives a generalization there and He just says, like, all have sinned. Now, really, I think it only really matters if the church knows that they have sinned so that they repent and become part of the church. You can debate that one with me later. We'll, we'll, we'll spiritually our messel. But the Bible doesn't say that. So I'm wrong, and the Bible's right. Amen? Every time. What does it say here? And I drive this point home because some of you are unsaved. And you're going through life like it doesn't matter. Well, I promise you this. When the Bible says every, it means every. That's all of you. And there's coming a day that every knee will bow to Jesus as Lord. The difference is if you'll bow to him now, you'll inherit eternal life. But if you bow to him then, you'll still bow. But he'll be your Lord who will cast you into hell. And I think that's a square deal because he gave you his word and he gave you this foolish preacher to come up here on a Wednesday night and say, please don't go to hell. Be saved. Amen. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Well, I've got my issues. I've got my questions. Yeah, so do the rest of us. Can we get confirmation of that tonight? Anybody here got questions and issues? Any of you ever doubt God? Oh, you're getting pious now. <laughs> let me, let's let we'll go to a verse on pride. <laughs> I doubt myself a lot more than my thoughts about God. Absolutely, but that's a complicated way of just saying we doubt. We doubt. My point is, we're not a bunch of people saying we've got this thing all figured out and our lives are hunky dory and squared away and you should be like us. No, this is me saying to you. I'm going to say it this way for emphasis. Don't be mad at me. I just I need to say it this way. March night, 1994, God scared me out of hell. That's a better way to say what I was thinking. I just, I don't want to go to hell. And I'll tell you, as an 11-year-old, that was my motivation. But as a 39-year-old, I'm so glad that happened because now I realize that yes, the wrath of God's been satisfied and yes, my sins are forgiven, but now I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. And I willingly serve Him. So the choice is yours tonight, but I promise you, one day the choice will not be yours. It's your choice now. You could do it sort of on your terms now, but then it'll be on His terms. Alright, let me move on. So Paul says, you are full, you are rich, you have reigned. He said, I I would to God that you did. This exaltation that he's talking about that we just proof text all across the New Testament is the crown of those willing to face humiliation for Christ's sake. This life is the time for cross-bearing. The next will be for crown-wearing. So, Paul says to begin, you are not yet kings. Well, what are we then? Well, to the Corinthians, he says you're fools for Christ's sake. And I would remind you that Paul was no fool. I don't think Paul enjoyed suffering any more than the next guy. Now we read about Paul and some of the other apostles. They'd beat him up in one town, throw him out. They'd get up and wipe themselves clean and say, you know, we joke and say, they'd say, like, Well, that was fun. Let's go to the next town and do it again. Maybe they didn't use those exact words, but the, the connotation is simply that for Christ who died for their sins, bled and died, and suffered on a cross, by whose stripes they are healed, they said, What's, what's one more beating, right? But Paul's no fool. I don't know that he specifically wanted this life. God chose it for him and he willingly served this life. And he writes here as if he wished the Corinthians were right by saying, we are kings, we are full, we are rich. But Paul knows that they're not. So he reminds the Corinthians beginning in verse 9, and us too indirectly, of the plight of the apostles. And so we understand the apostles' role in this context as that of the Old Testament prophet. The spokesman for God. The one who, no matter what pain, no matter what humiliation, no matter what odd thing happened in their life, their calling, whether they wanted to or not, was to be God's mouthpiece on the earth. So it was for the apostles. And thankfully, they suffered much and most were martyred. Were all of them martyred? I some scholars in here tonight. I should know that. I don't know. But that some of them were martyred. So that we would have the word. What a wonderful thought. So read verse nine. Up against his sarcasm in verse eight, he says, for I think that God has set forth us, the apostles last as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. So he pictures them here as thrown into the arena. You've seen the pictures. The Christian bookstores sell them. The Colosseum, the Christians tied at the stake and the lion over there. This person's going to be martyred. This is what Paul is picturing here. He says, God has set us forth, the apostles, as it were appointed unto death and we're made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. He and the other apostles suffered severely for the faith. And so Paul says here, for God's sake, We suffered. And we're made a spectacle. And, and the way that he pictures it is great. He says to the entire world, but, but then he says, but even to the angels. And we can just kind of imagine the, the imagery there of the heavens and the angels kind of viewing over into this, this fishbowl of a world and seeing what is happening here. In verse 10 he says, this seemed foolish by the worldly standard. We are fools for Christ's sake. And again, some reprimand to the Corinthians, but you are wise in Christ. This is not him complimenting them. He's saying to them, what we did by the world's standards seemed foolish, but I promise you it was, was of Christ. And he had the authority to say that. And he said, you guys are not following the same route, but you act as if you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised we think about the Apostle Paul, and you you could wonder, well, what would his life have turned out to be had he not had the Damascus Road? Had he just continued on the normal path of his life? Oh, he would have been elevated to the top. He was already mostly at the top, but he'd have been the guy in the Jewish religion, in the Jewish world. There probably would have been no ceiling to the success that Saul of Tarsus could have achieved in this world, but instead... He has the Damascus Road experience. And he asks of the Lord in Acts chapter 9, verse 6, Lord, what would you have me to do? I start every day that way. Lord, what would you have me to do? Now, some days I have some plans. I'm going to go down to Krispy Kreme. I have coffee and donuts. But, Lord, while I'm down there, is there anything you need? While I'm out, anyways. I'm not telling you that you've got to just shut your life down and, and just sit around until the Lord tells you something. I think often we think that's what waiting on the Lord means. Stephen, you and Liz waiting on the Lord to send you on the mission field, right? Just sitting around doing nothing? No, it's hard work, isn't it? This waiting on the Lord is, is busy. It's difficult. It's a lot of fun asking a lot of people for their money. Yeah. This was Paul. Saul of Tarsus converted to Paul. How did he live his life? Lord, what would you have me to do? He lived out the remainder of his life doing that which God said, this is what I would have you to do. But to most, this seemed foolish and it seemed weak. Even to the church, as he began to be active in the church and a leader and they recognized him as an apostle, they'd try to tell him what to do. They'd say, Paul, don't go over there. They'll beat you. Paul, don't go there. They'll jail you. Could you imagine the Jerusalem church after Paul's hauled away to a Roman jail and they had all told him not to? Oh, I mean, I know we don't gossip, but I could imagine. Can you imagine the gossip? Somebody said, you hear about Paul? No, what happened? He went to jail. No, he didn't. We told him not to go down there. They'd arrest him and take him to jail. What's he thinking? Does he not know how limited his ministry is going to be from a Roman jail cell? You know, I don't know. if Maybe he don't have some sin in his life. Are you guys not this vile and wicked? All right, well, pray for me. And there sits Paul and writes a large chunk of The Bible. you know, in that limited capacity in this Roman jail cell. Oh, it seems, seems like it's all wrong. It seems so foolish. It seems so weak. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, you guys are preferring another way of living. You want to be wise and strong and held in honor. He's making the point here that the apostles' suffering was wise and was strong and was held in honor. Maybe not now, but someday when they're giving out the crowns, that'll become clear. The more modern martyr, Jim Elliot, I believe had a true grasp on Paul's sentiment here. As he is famously quoted in saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Isn't this what Paul's saying? It's like when Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Warren Wearsby said, strength that knows itself to be strength is weakness. But weakness that knows itself to be weakness becomes strength. I'm going to tell on one of my boys tonight, you other two don't pick on him for me saying this. Promise? Promise? Thomas recently challenged a girl to an arm wrestle. <laughs> and you don't even I tell you the rest of the story, do I? Strength that thinks itself is strength is weakness. He was so sure of himself. And if you're not around Thomas very much and don't know him, his dad's sentiment toward him is, he's my little Ernest T. Bass. I love him. But he's his own guy. He's smart as a whip. He'll do well in life. I don't mean that as an insult but just kind of in his ways, you know. It's me, it's me, it's Ernest T. So he he recently said, you know, I'll arm wrestle you to a girl, and I'm left-handed, I'll even do it right-handed, he said. And he lost. (laughs) And he didn't come telling anybody. He kept his mouth shut. And she came and said, I just beat Thomas in arm wrestling. And I thought, oh, I said, buddy, there's only two ways that could have went, and both of them would have been bad for you. Number one, you beat that girl at arm wrestling, she's going to hate you the rest of your life. Number two, you lose to that girl at arm wrestling, and you got that on you the rest of your life. But it's a good illustration of where we are tonight. Strength that knows itself to be strength is weakness. Oh, I could beat this girl at arm wrestling. I'll even do it with the wrong hand. This is the Corinthians. We are rich. We are full. We reign as kings. Paul said, I wish you did, but you don't. Wiersbe goes on to say, weakness that knows itself to be weakness becomes strength. Do you know your weaknesses? I'll give you a silly one for me. Do you know why I joke about Krispy Kreme donuts so much? I love them. I I could eat a whole dozen if they're hot. I mean, I could just... just suck them right in. And not even feel guilty about it. It's a problem. It really is. They've got anonymous groups for other things, but they don't have it for Krispy Kreme eaters. No, they probably do. Now I'm being goofy, but, but really on the, on the deep things of life, especially the spiritual things, do you know your weaknesses? If you parade yourself around as strong and you kind of put off out of your mind your weaknesses, that's exactly where the world, the flesh, the devil are going to attack, and they're going to get you. You've got to know your weaknesses best so you can defend against it in those areas. Take the path of humility. Don't take the path of, I'm rich, I'm full, I reign as a king. Paul then builds his case with a list, and I'll finish with this. Verse 11, 12, and 13. Notice the list he gives here. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. So he says we're hungry, the apostles. He said we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're not clothes to wear, we've been beaten, we're homeless. Verse 12, we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we blessed, being persecuted, we suffer it. We labor by hand, we're reviled, meaning we're slandered, we're persecuted. Verse 12 and 13, he explains, in the normal ebb and flow of life, Given such things here. Look at verse 13. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring scouring of all things unto this day. So he starts in verse 12. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer. Being defamed, we entreat. He says, When this happens, this is what we do. When we are reviled or slandered, we return blessings in exchange. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are defamed, we just encourage. Be intrigued. For Christ's sake. We do these things for Christ's sake. It says, for Christ's sake. Look at the last few words there. Verse 13. We are made as the filth of the world and are the off scouring of all things unto this day. A lot of other words you can use there, but I just picked scum. I don't think Paul or any of the apostles are scum. I put them on a high plane in my own life. But Paul says here, for the sake of Christ, we're willing to be the scum of the earth. Now, I want to warn you in closing, because there is a thing of being pious for Christians, and there is a thing of addressing such things in the physical to make us feel like we've addressed the spiritual. This is not Paul calling the Corinthians to such a life. He doesn't say that. This is not Paul saying, well, you guys have got to all be hungry and thirsty and homeless. No, this is Paul contrasting for their spiritual well being the mindset of two differently lived lives. He writes as if the Corinthians have misunderstood. They're behaving as if right now in their life was the time of the promised inheritance. And I know to an extent, yes, it is. But, but don't forget the best is yet to come. Amen. They're a long way from the promised inheritance. Yes, we live a victorious Christian life. Yes, today we are saved. We begin our eternal life. Praise the Lord. But the best is still yet to come. The Corinthians' mistake here is that they're living for the honor that comes from men rather than that which comes from God. So Paul writes to them about this case he lays out for the servants of Christ. The servant of Christ is humble and faithful. The servant of Christ is not often popular. The servant of Christ is willing to work and willing to suffer. And the servant of Christ is crowned. Not now, but in the end, the servant of Christ is crowned. The Corinthians had instead elevated Paul and Apollos and Cephas, and they were trying to elevate themselves through their association with Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And Paul corrects them here. Being associated with these men, if that's truly the route they wanted to take, does not mean elevation, it means being ready to suffer and often being despised.